Our scripture reading this morning <clears throat> is going to come from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, and I'm going to read all the way through chapter 4, verse 6. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word this morning. Paul says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I wonder if any of you heard that a couple of months ago there was a man who was uh, arrested and jailed in Canada for what was known as family violence. Man's name was Robert Hoogland and apparently has a child who was wanting to transition uh, from being a, a, a female child to a male child. And the mother eventually got on board, but the father refused to participate, even refusing to refer to the child at, by their preferred pronouns. Well, eventually the, court, uh, the, the, the uh, school that the child went to, as well as the doctor who was going to be performing the medical procedures, uh, ended up being taken to court by the father. Well, not only did the father lose, but the courts then turned around and charged him with family violence. Let me read you from the article of the ruling. Attempting to persuade the child to abandon treatment for gender dysphoria, addressing the child by its birth name, referring to the child as a girl or with female pronouns, whether to him directly or to third parties, shall be considered to be family violence. According to it's a section 38 of the Family Law Act. Now, I don't have any interest in doing a sermon this morning on the politics of transgenderism or the Canadian legal system at all. I simply want you to take notice that, that there's a generation coming up where when these kinds of news pieces become more common and more commonplace, there's a portion of the population who sees them <clears throat> and is completely baffled by them. Having zero understanding of exactly what's going on, it looks as if the world has gone completely beside us and we have no idea what's happening. <clears throat> but I want to speak to that generation and say, honestly, I'm not sure that the younger generation is any better equipped to understand the changes that are going on either. Back in 2018, I read an article that The Atlantic had done 
on the, on the, the struggle of gender dysphoria where they had highlighted, highlighted a young lady who they called Claire, not her real name, who, when she was a teenager, began going through teenage things, depression, anxiety, and most of that was associated with her body. Well, sometime along the way, she discovered a YouTube channel uh, run by a guy named Miles McKenna. The guy's got like a million subscribers and is a, uh, was born with female body parts, but had transitioned through uh, testosterone treatments, a double mastectomy and all the things into what appeared to be a very happy, well-adjusted male. And so Claire began to wonder to herself whether or not she was truly actually a boy on the inside. And she began to speak to some of her school counselors and of course her parents. Uh, her parents, very interestingly, were quoted as saying, we made the decision to allow for Claire to work this out all on her own, which I thought was interesting. Um, but eventually, as time kind of went on, especially a year later, Claire found herself looking inside the mirror and having a moment of self-actualization where she saw sort of the, you know, the sort of uh, a short haircut, the sort of baggy clothing she was wearing. And she said, you know what, none of this is making me happy either. either. And so she abandoned the idea and sort of went on. And again, my point this morning is not to do a sermon about the struggles of the people who experience gender dysphoria. What I simply want to try to pitch to you is this. I don't think that you come to a conclusion that I am a uh, woman that was born in a man's body or vice versa without having a host of influences on you that walked you through that decision. That is... <laughs> No one ends up coming to these kinds of conclusions in a vacuum. We are always at all times being shaped into someone's image of what they believe and have told us and we've bought into of how they ought to see the world as it were. We're always being formed in these things. Well, as it turns out, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 has been defending his work among believers there. And at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, he begins to talk about how to lay out all of the underpinnings of what it means to grow, what it means to develop as a Christian. And so Paul is giving us sort of his understanding of a huge topic that at least in our day has begun to be known as spiritual formation. The phrase simply refers to this idea that when someone becomes a Christian, they immediately set out on a personal and spiritual journey that's going to involve influences that will seek to form you into something that you were not before. Look at chapter three, verse 18. Paul says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. Do you hear what he's saying? Paul is saying that transformation into something is an inevitability in life. Christians though, we hope are headed towards something more uh, glorious. And so what we want to do this summer is I want to unpack for us just what the Bible says about the idea of spiritual formation. And in addition, I want to add to that what the leadership of this church has tried to cobble together as a path that we as a body would like to experience when it comes to spiritual formation. That is, I'm a member of this church. What do you want to see formed in me? We're going to look at those things this summer. 
But this morning I want to introduce the topic of spiritual formation under three headings. Spiritual formation, I want you to see, is happening. Secondly, that it's also a recommendation. But then finally, spiritual formation is realized only in Jesus. Okay, let's take that first one. Spiritual formation is happening. Look at verse 14. Because Paul is setting up this contrast. God's intention with Moses was one thing, but the problem is, is that all of Moses' people were, were hard, they had minds that were hardened. And to even to this day, those Jewish people have a veil over their hearts. In other words, the net result of what was being formed in these people's lives <laughs> resulted in what Paul calls blindness. Look at verse 4, in chapter 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light. So what I want you to notice about that passage is, is there is no option not to be formed by something. I know that's a double negative. Bear with me. <laughs> Positively spoken, you're always being formed by something. And it comes in one of two forms. There's a sense in which we are formed by the ideas and the beliefs and the notions that people have presented to us that we've adopted, that we've embraced. It's the old book that was uh, that written by uh, Weaver. Ideas have consequences. Sure, they do. But here's the thing. There's another side of formation that's not just in our stated beliefs, but also in the things and the practices that we enact on a regular basis that themselves are equally as powerful into turning you into what you're going to be. My guess is this morning you went through a ritual where you woke, you bathed, you dressed. During a week you went to work, you took a break, you went back to work for a little while longer, you came home, maybe you recreated, maybe you rested for a while. But you've got to realize, and Paul I think wants us to see, that these are formative acts that are building something in us. So I hope you could recognize for th that for this reason, the modern world is a habit-making machine. And there's no greater influence it's exerting itself on our world, I would argue, than technology. Can anyone deny this? <laughs> we live in a day where every single waking minute, whether you're standing in line at Walmart or whether you're parked behind a car at a red light, what do we do? We immediately pull out our phones. So we can check and see what the notifications are in the last 30 seconds since the last time that I checked it. I dug up some statistics that apparently the average adult person's exposure to social media is around two and a half hours a day. If you're a high school senior, it's four hours a day. That's a powerful influence. But what we're discovering of late in the last few years is that so much of the activity behind social media <laughs> is rather perfectly suited to produce despair and depression in the people that are engaged in it the most deeply. That is, we find that what's happened with social media is it's created us to, to, to think about our world in ways that make what's outside of me less real than what's going on inside my head or my heart, wherever you want to locate your internal world, right? When I was a kid growing up, it was always the television, you know? My parents sat down with me and were like, stop, you're watching too much TV, it's going to fry your brain. But now you realize that what we have now in terms of technology is infinitely more immersive than anything that television used to be for my generation. And with, but now we're realizing that it's saying something to us. A lady by the name of uh, Sherry Turkle, who's a researcher at MIT, wrote a book called Reclaiming Conversation, which is kind of a funny title if you think about it 
where she documents this, this discernible, measurable loss in empathy from people who spend the most time on social media. Does that make sense? So the greater your involvement in social media, the less empathy you have for others, she documents. And she says the reason is, is because the ideas about identity and freedom and happiness and whatever else make those beliefs very thin because they've not been worked out among real human conversation, which is a great irony if you think about it. What, what Turkle says is, is there are four things that social media is sort of pounding into our psyches. Number one is that all values are completely relative. There's nothing special about yours over against somebody else's. Number two, all relationships are transactional. That is, what can you give me for what I give you? The third thing is, therefore, that all of, all of our identities, whatever formation we do in that regard, are so fragile that can be changed at a moment's notice. And for that reason, all sources of fulfillment that you think you're after are ultimately going to be disappointing. In other words, what social media has done is it's preached a great amount of freedom for us, and yet in the midst of it, we've lost our freedom. That's the great irony. Now, look, I realize that for many of you, especially those of you who are parents, this creates what we call a great challenge. And I know that there's probably many of you in the room right now that are being like, yes, Les, and that's exactly why my children will not have a cell phone until they are 25 years old, right? But please understand something. Withdrawal from the world of social media does not inoculate your child from the cultural inundation that we're living. It is the, it is the air that our children breathe if they walk outside the door. But I do think there's actually opportunities that present itself. There's a guy who's a professor in Oklahoma, actually used to be involved in the RUF at the University of Oklahoma, named Alan Noble, who wrote a book called Disruptive Witness, Spiritual Formation in a Digital Age. And what, what Noble is saying is, is that formation is still quite possible. There is still a generation who is longing to hear from what Christians have to say when it is embodied in your stories and the narratives of your life, especially when you're going through suffering. Now, why would that be the case? Tim Keller says that a lot of times secularists will sort of take on a worldview like an ill-fitting suit. It doesn't really quite fit. But every now and then, especially when life stops working well, it gets a tear. It rips. And suddenly the worldview underneath us begins to open up and we don't exactly know what to do. Well, at that moment, a Christian has an opportunity to step in and say, actually, let me walk you through how the allegiances that you've made in your heart here are actually bringing about the very death you're trying to avoid. It sounds a lot like 1 Peter 3, 15, where Peter says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. That's what Peter's talking about there, spiritual transformation. But it's also a good transition to my second point. Spiritual formation, yes, is happening, but also once you see that spiritual formation is a recommendation. Because like I said, Christians have a variety of responses to this secularizing influence. On the one hand, you have people who we might consider uh, take the path of withdrawal from the world. In other words, I'm going to set up my little family here in this cocoon of protection and we're just going to ride it out as long as we can. Other Christians sort of take what we might call the power route, right? If we can just get the right guys elected, if we can just lobby for the right laws, you know, then we're going to own the libs or whatever it is that we're into that particular year. 
Of course, it always elicits another response from the other side, but I'll give that in just a second. Still others go what we might call the route of accommodation, where you start to think to yourself, well, you know what, maybe these people are right. I mean, who's to say that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Who's to say that the Bible can be any kind of real authority? These are all kinds of options people have. But what I want you to take note of is that Paul's method is so different. And it's summed up there in chapter 4, verse 3. Look what he says. He says, our approach is, by open statement of the truth we would, commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Hey, look at that word commend. I want you to highlight that one. When you commend something, that means to present something as suitable for something else. I did a little word study on this one. It turns out that the Greek word translated commend, Paul uses in another place, especially in Colossians 1.17. Do you remember there where Paul says, and Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together? Okay, the word behind the phrase hold together is the same word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians that's translated to commend. What is he saying? Paul is saying, what I'm doing is, is I'm commending to the world a way of looking at the world in which all the pieces hold together. Otherwise, your world is coming apart. <laughs> and what we're doing is, is we're commending it to you. Or if you prefer, we are recommending it to you as a way to look at the world that would give life rather than blind you from it as the rest of it's doing. I find this to be genius on Paul's part because he's not encouraging us to withdraw from the world. If we do, we lose our sense of witness to the world. That's why we are here. What he says is, is we have to go connect with the world. And that connection is not through a power play by sort of crushing the opposition however we can. Because if you realize that what happens is all that elicits is an equal and opposite reaction, power reaction from the other side, it's pretty futile pretty quickly. You know, what Paul is saying is, what I want to do is I want to walk you through how the ways in which you're living is bringing death. And in the end, what happens is people begin to connect with you because of your story, because of the way in which God confronted death in you and began to bring about new things and suddenly began to live up into that particular way of looking at the world. I found a guy who made an interesting journey through this. Uh, his name is Justin Early. He wrote a book called The Common Rule. Apparently, Early was doing some um, not-for-profit work in China about 10 years ago and um, had what we would call, what we used to call an emotional breakdown. Uh, everything fell out from under him. Things stopped making sense. He, he, he couldn't function. He was depressed. He couldn't get out of the bed. Well, after months of sort of working through the depression and the anxiety he was going through, he and a friend, along with his wife, begin to put in place brand new practices for himself. Things that applied to what he did daily and things that applied to what he did weekly. Listen to, what this, listen to the changes this guy made. He said, number one, I began kneeling in prayer three times every day. Three times, kneeling, physically getting on the ground, kneeling. Number two, I made sure that I had at least one meal with another human being. Number three, I decided I would turn my phone off for one hour a day, just one hour a day. And then number four, before I ever opened my phone and checked it, I would always read a Bible verse before I checked it. I want to get reality before I start to get the, 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 uh, the false version of it. But then he said weekly, did some other things. First of all, he learned to take at least one day off from his work weekly. There's a novel idea. Where would he have gotten that? 
Secondly, he wanted to find someone other than his spouse to talk to for one hour a week, just one hour. He also learned that he needed to curate his social media to try to find some people that were slightly more uplifting and positive about the news. And then finally, he said, I began to fast from something, not always food, but something for 24 hours once a week. It's fascinating, isn't it? And he began to see these things as being fashioning for him and making him into something. So here's my question. What about us? What about us as a body at Christ Pres? I told you back in January that the session was going to begin to wrestle through this question of what we as a body have decided are going to be the practices that form us. What kind of recommendation would the leadership make to you as a congregation? Well, what we end up coming through after lots of hours of study and hashing it through is a nice little acrostic that is the word ACTS. A-C-T-S. What do they stand for? Let's dive into it. Number one, the first one is attend. To attend. What we're going to find out next week in our study is that you will always take on the characteristics of your tribe. Who I decide to spend time with, especially now that we have gotten a heavy dose of isolation from the pandemic, we now know just how vital it is to be with one another. That's the A. The C is the word connect, because you can attend without connecting, can't you? What we mean by connection is just that we, that we are aware of each other's stories. And we know when some of those stories have hit, I don't know, speed bumps, so that we can incarnate ourselves into your life as you're going through that thing. That's connection. The T in the, in, in the acrostic stands for train, <laughs> There's an assumption that when somebody becomes a Christian, the things that Jesus wants to make us are not intuitive. They don't come naturally. And we've gotta be trained in it through a process of teaching, through a process of processing, through going through experiences of accountability with each other. And then finally, the S predictably means to serve. That is that things never really come home to us. Grace doesn't come home to us until we begin to extend that grace into the lives of those who are in need around us. A-C-T-S. That's going to be our study this summer as we go through each one for the next few weeks and figure out what God has for us there. But all I want you to grasp on this is, is that it's a recommendation that we're making. We're commending to you a way of seeing the world around us that brings blessing instead of blindness. Fourthly and finally, not only is spiritual formation happening, not only is it a, a, rec a recommendation, but finally, spiritual formation terminates in Jesus. Because here's my question. Does anybody ever feel overwhelmed when people start, I don't know, going through the things of like, okay, kids, here's what we're going to do. We're all going to become better people. <laughs> I always think about that because it makes me feel a little bit like a New Year's resolution. I hate New Year's resolutions, not because I don't want to be a better person. But it's because every time I try, I always break them. And I get into kind of a mental mindset where I'm like, you know what? Why even try? And the same thing can happen spiritually as well. Why even try? But here's the deal. I've become convinced that one of the reasons why I don't want to even try is because I'm still listening to what Paul calls the God of this world. Because as you dive deeper into the book of Corinthians, what you find is... The gods of this world, they function fundamentally on a merit system. And all of a sudden, if I set up as a goal to be something different, to be better, and I fail, 
It's my identity that fails right along with it. And when that happens, my, my heart begins to dissolve as well. There's disillusion even in my own heart when that happens. So here's the question. Is there a different way of looking at this? I think there is. And you get it very subtly in how Paul finishes our passage right here. You probably didn't even notice it. Because what, what one, one theologian I heard talk about on this one said that you have Paul here commending something, but he's very much of a, of a cosmopolitan, multi-ethnic person, is he not? In other words, he says, if you look at what spiritual formation is about, it ultimately comes down to what it is that you value. And he said, if you were a Jewish person, you understood all of your aspirations to be caught up in the idea of light. For a Jewish person, light was where it all came together. Look at this Old Testament, Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Isaiah 9.1, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And then, of course, the apostles pick up on this. John 1, verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. You see the point? A Jewish person saw all of their aspirations as wanting to head to the light. But Paul, secondly, though, was a Roman citizen. For the Roman, it was different. For a Roman, it was the idea of glory. Everything was about the glory that was the glory of the Roman Empire. There was the glory of, of, of the gods who had taken place on earth that were known as the Caesars. And of course, there's the glory of Rome itself, the city to which all roads lead. In other words, the same way that the Jews held up light, the Romans did for glory. But finally, thirdly, Paul is also speaking in a Greek city. And the Greeks were different. For the Greeks, it was knowledge. The knowledge of the academy where you came to become a learned person the great ideas that the sophists would throw around and, and, and search for wisdom and for truth in the world. The Jews pursued light. The Romans pursued glory. The Greeks pursued knowledge, which is one of the reasons why Paul, a Hebrew by birth and a Roman citizen speaking in a Greek city, says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying it doesn't matter which path you take of spiritual formation. If it doesn't terminate in Jesus, it's been a waste of time. And here's the reason why. Because every other system works on a meritocracy. All of the other worldviews will basically cause you to rise or fall on the basis of your own performance, something which Jesus knew full well you and I are completely incapable of. And for that reason, Jesus did not build his worldview, his world system, on the basis of that. He built it upon grace. That's the difference. The thing that empowers our desires to want to be transformed into the image of Christ. If it's not rooted in grace, it will do the opposite of what we seek. It'll turn us into Stoics who see values for value's sake just because that's the way we ought to live. That's not Jesus's way. Hey, so come on this journey with us. <laughs> come, let's go see exactly what Jesus is up to. But in the end, it's got to terminate in him or else the rest of the efforts look like the rest of the world. That's what we're going to talk about the next few weeks. Come and join us. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you allow us to engage in this activity of the table, this, this practice, this embodied practice, 
with just that amount of anticipation, Father, we would see something coming here to us that would form us into what you would have us to be. Would you do that? Bless us, Father, as we gather together, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.